It's time for the Image Doctors Photography Podcast. Hey, everyone. I'm Jason O'Dell. And I'm Rick Walker. Thanks to everyone for tuning in with us this week. We have some fun stuff to talk about. How are you doing, Rick? I'm doing well. Great. Well, it's it's nice, but I'm looking out my window and seeing snow. <laughs> so like, a, little, a little bit chilly out there. Uh, fortunately, it's not sticking to the street. So it, no, there's not I worry more it. about driving on it than I do. You know, the fact that it exists doesn't bother me. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely it's definitely a, a chilly, chilly morning here today. Um, what do we got on our agenda for today's episode? Well, a few quick things and then we'll spend a little bit longer on one topic. Um, we'll very briefly mention some new announcements that came out, but we'll plan on talking about them more in a subsequent episode. I'll just say, maybe I'll just do it right now. I'll just say there's a new Nikon 600 F4 lens for the Z cameras that's out. Bring your wallet. Fu <laughs> yep. Fuji announced their X-T5 camera, which will be out in about a week for sale. And it uses their new 40 megapixel APS-C sensor, and but it's got the more classic controls like you find on the XT series of the past, which is kind of cool. And then Canon came out with a R6 Mark II um, with a few enhancements to it in terms of autofocus, a little bit uh, higher res sensor and things of that sort. So some interesting things that look pretty nice, but we'll talk more about them later. And then I think you're going to chat a little bit about your White Sands workshop that you just did. And it looked yeah, like it, it came fun. out well based on the images that you showed me. Yeah. And most important thing was even better was that my clients got good images because yeah. that's, that's kind of the, the whole point. And then we'll <laughs> wrap those. up. Then we'll wrap up with their, a little bit longer discussion that has to do with super zooms and some ways that we've found on mitigating image quality issue and, and issues and some other things to make them a little bit more helpful and versatile than they might be otherwise. And then one really important thing to not forget to mention mm -hmm. um, is that um, the infrared workshop, our infrared boot camp, essentially mm -hmm. uh, two day or three days in Tucson, Arizona is, is, um, uh, exceeded its minimum enrollment and we're definitely going. Uh, so that's a go. Uh, and I think we have maybe two or three seats open for it. So if this, if infrared photography and more importantly, getting into the nuance of processing your infrared images. And I think what we're going to present is almost an exclusive way of processing with Lightroom classic rather than the traditional everything having to have go through Photoshop, I think people are going to be pretty amazed at what, what we can do now. Um, yeah. Especially with some of the newer enhancements in the most recent uh, Lightroom version, which came out a few weeks ago and blew us both away with the yeah. masking tool. So I'll just say the combination of things that we'll show people, I think will be really profound. Yeah. And, and, and helpful. I, I think there's a impediment to infrared is people's fear of Photoshop. So I think if we can kind of, I think we've come up with a way to get out of Photoshop for the overwhelming majority of images. I mean, there's still times when it's useful. This makes but, it so quicker. 
Oh my gosh, it's, oh, it's so much faster. It's it's glorious, as you might yeah. say. <laughs> so, yeah. To use your word, that would be. It, it's I didn't true. know that was a word of mine, but it sounds like a good one. It's it's a great word. <laughs> but just um, sorry, excuse me, but just as a reminder, that is. I can't believe the calendar is already switching to twenty twenty three. That workshop is um, the twenty uh, third through 26th of March or no, February, it's February. Um, and the details for that are on both my website and we'll post it again on our image doctors, Facebook page. So it's, it's really going to be mostly Friday, the 24th and Saturday, the 25th, but we'll, you'll want to get in probably the night before, um, because it'll be all day on those days. So anyway, it will be fun, and, and as we've shared before, the Tucson area is glorious for infrared because there's a lot of great, great subjects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, we'll talk more about that. Um, we'll have some other topics on infrared because um, we're both tinkering with our conversions. We'll talk about that some other time, um, like after it gets done, <laughs> because right now we don't have them. Uh, but uh, I, I think an important thing to mention with the workshop is we will absolutely be talking and showing full spectrum options if yes. people are familiar with that conversion right um it gives you a tremendous amount of creative flexibility and up until recently it wasn't something that you or i really considered mostly because of the challenge with uh filters and stuff but um there's been some improvements there we'll talk about that more when when you get yeah. your camera back yeah. but but the idea is that you can use drop in, uh you know uh filters that mount inside your lens mount instead of in, you know inside the mount instead of having to use a front ring filter have yeah. really so changed the camera body right rather than the front of the lens that yeah. changes the game because now you don't have to worry about having different filter sizes for different lenses yeah. and and that's been an issue so anyway we'll talk about that some other time but um so, but that's just a nice reminder. So if you want to join us, we still have space on our infrared class. That's going but to be it in is February. Nicely popular. So oh far. yeah. Yeah. We've, we, uh, we're, we're, how many people are we taking max on? I think 10 is the limit. Yeah. Um, and we're I think, bumping up on that. We're coming, yeah, we're coming on that. close. So on it that. would be good for people to register soon. If you have an interest mm -hmm. in that. Definitely. Definitely want don't, to do that. Don't wait. Okay. All right. So why don't we talk a little bit about White Sands? Oh, gosh, it's a great place. I first went there in, um, I, I went there in 2016 um, to scout it um, because it turns out it's about an eight, eight and a half hour drive from here. So it was one of those get in the car. Just, yeah, you know. It's a ways. But um, White Sands is one of these national parks. It used to be a national monument. It's now a national park. It's um, located between... Alamogordo and Las Cruces, New Mexico. So the very Southern part of New Mexico. And really the easiest way to go there is to stay in Alamogordo. Cause from there, it's only about 15, 20 minutes to the park entrance. And then another 15 minutes gets you out to where these dunes are. And White Sands is, you've seen these photos probably. I mean, I know you have. Mm -hmm. um, I've been there. This is yeah. the, these are dunes that aren't, sand in the traditional sense these are gypsum so they're very white mm -hmm. it's it, it's a different consistency it's soft but it's not it's not like really soft beach sand kind of kind of stuff although it's <laughs> you can get a pretty good workout if you hike out there pretty yes, far definitely. Um, and there's a mountain range uh behind them to the west um 
and uh, on the other side, you've got uh, um, the Air Force Base, Holloman Air Force Base is there, and of course, White Sands is part of the missile range. So it's an interesting national park in the sense that it's not always open because sometimes there's military closures for it. But it's mm-hmm. famous for these pictures of the blue skies and if you get puffy clouds and the yucca that just emerge out of these dunes, in some cases, very solitary ones. And it's it's a it can be an incredibly serene place. It's very good place to go to kind of like unpack your brain. Um mm-hmm. What what is challenging about it though is that it's one of the few national parks that's fully gated after hours. You can't go in or out. You know, most national parks, if it's after hours, you just drive in. You can't do that in White Sands. So you need to get extra permits and have rangers show up and meet you and you have to pay for this. So that's what I did with my workshop is that we got in early twice, two early mornings. So we were there before sunrise, which is, you know, our popular blue hour right i mean that's Mm -hmm. and 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 the twilight's there the colors that come out and then they reflect on those dunes are mind-blowingly good um and i'll share some more photos on our on our page they're certainly on my um regular facebook page the jason and adele photography page that i've shared but you get these just absolute serene and the and when you get the band of the different colors on the horizon Mm -hmm. as you know just after sunset or before sunrise you go from being deep blues and purples to pinks and oranges and even if you don't have clouds that can be amazing Mm -hmm. so we went out to sunrises different stuff and we had some amazing cotton candy clouds the second morning over the dunes which is just killer i was I don't know when you're standing there and you've got your group and, and as a photographer, you know, we've been doing this for how long, right? I mean, we've been doing, when you mm-hmm. see a sky like that, that's doing something, and this isn't like the crazy exploding spectacular, but you know, you're going to get those clouds that just pick up the pinks and they're there to create some kind of content in an otherwise would have been a blank sky. And you just smile because you know, you're getting a treat. I don't know. That's how I felt. I was just ecstatic, especially for my clients. I'm like, guys, it doesn't get much better than this. <laughs> so just, yeah, go out there and enjoy it. What did you end up um, shooting with in terms of focal lengths? What worked well for you? So I brought three lenses to go with my Z9. Um, I brought my 14 to 30, which I maybe used for one shot, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or something like that. The and when I went last year, I was using my 24 to 120, which is going to be a topic of our super zoom uh, topic next. I brought the 24 to 120 this time because it it's there. Uh, I was very happy with that. But I found myself really using the long end a lot. I was really up there in the 70 plus millimeter range, even pushing out to 120. Because in white sands, you want to isolate subjects. And there's a lot of clutter out there. I mean, you see these pictures that look like it's just a you know, a, a yuck on a dune. The reality is there's a lot of other stuff that can get mm-hmm. in the way. And so you got to be very creative with the way you you shoot there. And so one way to 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 solve that challenge is to shoot longer. And so this year I brought the 100 to 400 Z lens, which I also picked up at the beginning of the year. And I use that um, in some cases almost exclusively. Like when we went out for a second for our, our evening shoot, I just said, I'm going to use this lens tonight. Um, yeah. And we had, um, I'll just say, we had the the post-sunset. If, you, if you're doing landscape photography and you're not staying for at least 20 minutes after sunset, 
you're you're losing out. I took photos. My final photo from the workshop was our second day of our evening shoot. It was taken 35 minutes after sunset. You would have said it's dark, like not totally dark, but mm-hmm. I mean, you could see, but it wasn't, it wasn't like pitch blackness, but it was definitely your eye doesn't see any color. Okay. Yeah. My exposure was something on the order of 15 seconds. Okay. With that yeah. lens. Mm-hmm. But here's what happened. It was absolute blue hour. The sky was purple because the camera picks it up. Your eye can't pick it up. And the west, the sun had set behind us, and there was still a glow on the horizon. And it was just kicking in this perfectly warm front light that, again, you wouldn't have noticed being color at all because by this time it's too dark for your eye mm-hmm. to perceive it. And I got this blue and gold contrast that was just so awesome um, 30 minutes after sunset. It would, you know, most people would have gone home by that point. So if you're not doing, and and I will say it's a lot easier to do those than it is to go out there 45 minutes before sunrise, (laughs) but we did that too. We did that too. Um, So that 100 to 400 was astounding. I did that. In fact, I did a lot of long focal length stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. 100, 200, 300, 400. So if you ever go to White Sands, yes, it's a landscape place, but as we've, I know you've brought this up in the past. Sometimes your your telephoto, at least a seventy to two hundred, or even a seventy to three hundred, or even something longer, if you can if you can pack it. Um, in in terms of diversity of subjects, white sands just it doesn't. There's not a lot of diversity. There's but you can look for a lot of abstracts. So you got your dunes and the and you know and a lot of it comes down to clouds. Um, so from the standpoint of the workshop, we were there for three days most of our shots came from one of those sessions, but you never know which one it's going to be. So it's like, so you you can walk out on the big dunes and then you got footprints everywhere. And thank you content aware, Phil. Um, yep. Or you can do close stuff with the yuccas, um, but it's quite, quite good. Highly recommend. Well, I think it actually creates a transition to our next topic because, you know, one of the things that I see on occasion on the internet that, drives me a little bit crazy is people saying, Oh, I'm getting this new camera or whatever. What's a good landscape lens. <laughs> right. And my answer would be almost anything, as long as it's reasonably good, you know, from edge mm-hmm. to edge, reasonably good. Yeah. You know, doesn't have to be absolutely perfect. And, and so you get in the question of, well, could I use a super zoom? something like a 24 to 200 or 24 to 240 or anything like yeah, that. The, old, the classic 28 to 300. There's a mm-hmm. lot of those lying around. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they're very useful. I mean, they, they give you the diverse options of, you know, how you want to frame things and you don't have to change lenses, which can be a very nice thing in the field. And it can be very fun. Mm-hmm. You know, especially but- if the conditions are changing, you know, but you know it's um they're not perfect even the best of them and there are several good ones out right now in the market that are just a heck of a lot better than the ones in the past which often suffered from you know severe sharpness fall off toward the edges you know problems at both ends of the uh, focal length range and just being generally kind of mediocre and you had to stop them down a lot 
the newer ones are, are are pretty decent, but they're not perfect. And so the intent of today's little topic on super zooms is to talk about how should you approach those? Um, how can you get best out of them? And, and what are reasonable expectations for them too? Yeah. And, um... and actually I would not put the Nikon 24 to 120 into this category. No. Even though it's a wide range. And the reason is that's a damn good lens. It really mm-hmm. is. It does not suffer from some of the problems of the lenses that we'll talk right. about in a few minutes. Well, and, and to put it in perspective, um, let's go back down memory lane a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once upon a time when I was getting into photography, the rule was zooms suck, period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just weren't very good compared to their fixed focal length um, counterparts. Right. Um, you know, zooms got a whole lot better, but as a general rule, uh, the shorter the zoom range, the typically the better the quality was. And then we right. started getting into, so the 24 to 120 has, is, is only a five X zoom range. Okay. But we're talking about things that have eight or sometimes 10 or, lo- you know, more longer zoom ranges. So like, um, 300, 28 to 300, that's a almost 11x zoom, right? So, right. you know, that's 10.7 if you do the math. But, um, and what, what they tend to be, the design of those tends to skew towards, you know, they're all purpose. They tend to be marketed towards the sort of consumer. And I don't want to degrade consumers, but I mean, you know, they're not considered pro lenses, although they pros use them. Sure. Um, they tend to have variable aperture design mm-hmm. and they tend to be slow or pretty slow at the long end. Like in some cases, you know, they, they might be 4.5 to 5.6, but now might, you might even see things going to F6.3 or even, or even more or sometimes days. even, yeah. right. And, and you'll see that that's, that's uh, for the listeners. Um, what are we talking about? We just mean you're, you're talking where the widest aperture is like f4 at the wide end but as you zoom out the app the widest aperture gets smaller so it goes to f5 6 or or whatever um and it's normal it's you know it's part and it's a way they can cut down on size and weight and um, cost right so um the good news is though that a lot of the new newer ones some of these um you know for the mirrorless cameras they're not bad no they're, uh, they're not perfect either but they're not bad. And, you know, I, I think, you know, just kind of setting the stage for this stuff, I think you need to think a little bit about how are you likely to use a lens like that? And, and if the honest answer is you're just going to post the images on social media or send to friends and emails, don't worry too much. Right. <laughs> I mean, just, just don't they'll be fine. You're not going to have an issue. Now, if your goal is to print poster sized images that are sharp edge to edge, you may want to think about some things and then do some things. And we'll, we'll talk about this. So some of this is just, you know, really thinking through how are you going to use it and, and set some reasonable expectations. So results. I, I kind of look at super zooms The you know, the benefit is, having everything in one lens and and there's i can't understate that that is a very good benefit and there have been mm-hmm. times when we were both um you know think back to when we were shooting um on our little side trip that we made out to the the sand dunes out here in colorado 
you know, mm-hmm. when it's sand dunes and blowing around and windy, it is nice to not have to change a lens. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> and having that full range instead of having a 24 to 70 and then a 70 to 200 or whatever, boy, that's one less thing to carry. I've always viewed the trade-off comes in two places. One is you've already mentioned, one's more of an optical trade-off and that is the um, image quality can, can not be as good. Sometimes the sharpness can fall off as mm-hmm. you mentioned, but the other one is that a lot of times you get, a little bit of creative restriction you're hampered a little bit by not having faster apertures to get softer backgrounds um you can kind of work that a little bit with telephoto end because you can get some you know but but it's not the same as having like an f4 lens or an even f2.8 lens you know um and and so because the the solution to get better edge clarity is typically stop the lens down a little bit the next thing you know, you're shooting everything at f8 or f11, and you just don't have those degrees of creative freedom from a from a depth of field perspective. Yeah. Now the the current ones that I've used, I mean, I've used things like the 28 300 Nikon in the past, and other ones. The ones that are current that I've used include the Nikon 24 to 200, the Canon 24 to 240. And the Tamron twenty-eight to two hundred, which works on a on a Sony E-mount camera, and you know, someone is bound to ask, "Well, how how would you rank them?" The way I would rank them is the best lens across its range is the Tamron twenty twenty-eight to two hundred, followed by the twenty-four to two hundred Nikon. Goes out a little bit wider, which is good. Mm-hmm but it gets kind of ratty um, toward the edges. You know, it gets that kind of um, astigmatism out there, which can make the image look a little bit twisted slightly. It's not horrible with that lens, um, but there's a little bit of that at 24 millimeters. And then with the Canon 24 to 240, which I would put at the bottom of that list of three, and it's not bad, you see even more of that. At okay. 24 millimeters. And none of these are bad lenses. No. I mean, no. they're all like, if you're using that system, we're not saying, oh gosh, you shouldn't buy it. Or you, no, you no, shouldn't no. buy a, shouldn't buy a Canon because it, you know, no, I no. mean, it, it's. No, but it, it's the weaker of the three. Right. The interesting thing with those three, and this is true with a lot of recent mirrorless lenses, is you don't gain a whole heck of a lot stopping them down. So if your edge quality is not great at 24 millimeters, stopping down a whole lot isn't likely to do what you think it might do. Yeah. Um, as but much here's as the, the flip past. side of that. Right. Here's the flip side of that. Shooting them wide open is then fine. Is, you know, it used to kind of be a general rule of I need to stop down a little bit. Bingo. So, so you can shoot that. And I've certainly done this with the 24 to 200 that you mentioned. Shoot mm-hmm. it wide open. It's okay. I'm yeah. not losing much doing that. I'm not. No, I'm not, you can you can get by with all three of those lenses. And I don't think that would have been the case ten years ago. No, definitely so not. That's most definitely that, not. That is something to keep in perspective. Yeah. So it just it makes things a little bit simpler and nicer, and 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 that's good. But you know what I would suggest is everyone that has one of these lenses, or if you're going to get one, you know, do some shooting with it and see what you think. Um, certain shooting styles are not going to be impacted by 
by those optical issues all that much, but they are present. So if you get one and you see that, don't think your lens is broken. Just realize right. that that's and one of the compromises. And, you know, a way of thinking about it is like with both the Canon and Nikon, you could sort of view the 24 millimeter position as, as an emergency position. You know, <laughs> there you go. If you stick to 28, like is the lower limit of that Tamron, they're pretty damn good. Yeah. Yeah. It's really when you only push them past that that you start seeing those issues. So, and another thing to keep in mind when you're going to choose one of these is size and weight. Um, yes, mm -hmm. it's only one lens, but I can tell you from the old carrying around a D850 with a 28 to 300, that was a pretty heavy thing to walk around with all day. Um, I'm much happier using something like the 24 to 200, which is a much yeah. smaller design, and yeah. you know, it's one of those things that that has improved with time, but they, they do add up in size and weight. Um, my 24 to 120 is actually a little heavier, but when I saw the image quality, you know, and it's it, distinctly better. It, it's one of those things that you can just really tell, especially again, like you mentioned at that wide end where, yeah, where, it, it's just much, much better. Now there's some things I found um, that are helpful with those lenses. So ways to, to fix things? Sort of. Kind sort of, or of. just how to yeah. work with the images? Yeah. One is that all of them benefit from a little bit of additional sharpening. So if you're the kind of person that, I'll just use the Lightroom um, parameters as an example. You know, the, the Adobe default is 40. And, and if you have a good sharp lens, that's probably about right. You know, their default settings are actually pretty good these days. They mm -hmm. used to be a little bit too weak, but th that's pretty good. But with these lenses, you're probably going to want to go to 50. You may even need to go a little bit more than that. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you'd be surprised at how well they actually work. It doesn't look, you know, weird and crunchy. It, it just looks, you know, fairly decent. So don't get locked into your default sharpening settings. Mm -hmm vary them for the lens and especially when you get out at either end of the range whether it's the short end or especially the long end a bit more sharpening is going to help you yeah and when i almost automatically just do about another um, 10 points and 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 just to throw in another option um, on top of that you know if you've got corner softness applying your sharpening selectively you know, at the edges of the image, maybe by using like a radial gradient tool mm -hmm. or something like that mm -hmm. can be a way where you bump up the sharpness just in the corners where it needs it a little bit more. Just a touch. Or, or, or texture slider or clarity, whatever, whatever tool you might have could it potentially get, help you. It can get crispy on you in a hurry. So you yeah. need to be careful, but that's a way to, to compensate for some of that. Because a lot of them are pretty good in the center. Yeah, they're, they're all good in the center and they're all good mid-range. You know, so if you're in that, let's say 35 to 100 in something, yeah, yeah, 150, they're they're pretty damn good. Yeah. Um, the other thing you could do is use some apps like you know we've talked about the DXO Pure Raw app, mm -hmm. um, but even uh, things like Nikon Studio and the Canon DPP program. I found sometimes 
it's it's weird because it, it doesn't seem completely consistent but i have absolutely seen situations where the edge quality you know like at 24 millimeters with those programs is a little bit better and i don't know if they're doing things like dxo does with a bit more sharpening toward the edges uh, depending on the lens i think they might be distortion um, so, profiles might be a little better too it's just possible yeah who knows yeah or I, they're I different will... <laughs> they're different they're at the very least different. And one of the things that you will see, this is a strange thing. And and I would just suggest people try it with the lenses that they're that they own and the software products they use for processing things. But it's not just a matter of the distortion correction being done a little bit differently. Sometimes the area that you see on the screen is different. It's literally a different crop. It's a different crop. Yeah. And I think that is something that happens. Like if you take a Nikon file into their software, mm -hmm. I think when you're at 24, I think it crops off more of the corners than, than what yes. Lightroom would do by default. Yeah. And I've, Some I've of these seen programs. similar things with the Canon stuff too. And so, one so they're just getting rid of it. They're making it go away by deletion. Yeah. Well, what what's happening is you're, you're you've got that, 24 to 200 let's say lens and with some of the programs it's really more like a 23 to 200 or a 22 to 200 but it's a bit ratty <laughs> right so so right. that yeah so more of the image circle is getting used than the manufacturer really intended so that's just a little tip you might mm -hmm. want to play with uh, the manufacturer software a little and then compare it with whatever you're using, whether it's Lightroom or Capture One or On One or whatever, and just see if it is a little bit different crop because it may point you to something that you want to do. And there's yeah. a obscure parameter in Lightroom called scaling that you can do under some of the transformational corrections that'll allow you to bring the image in cropping wise, but retain the the pixel count. Okay. We can always talk about that later. Uh, it's not one I've used much, but I've seen it in there. Yeah, it's yeah, there. yeah. There is a reason for it. It can be helpful. Okay. Um, so alternative software can sometimes give you a better image, you know, on those right. um, more challenging ones. Now, what about um, how? What about the relationship between camera bodies and what I mean really is sensor size and resolution with these lenses? Yeah, it's it's a that's a good one. Oftentimes when you read really, really positive reviews of super zooms, you'll also end up seeing that they were on lower res bodies, meaning like 24 megapixels or 20 megapixels. And you will definitely see a lot more of the imperfections of these zoom lenses on higher res bodies, meaning like mm -hmm. 45 or 50 or 60 megapixels, that those just do not bring out the best in these lenses. Um, but it's more of a psychological thing than anything else. Well, if you were to yeah, just res them down to 24 equivalent, they would look pretty damn good. Right. And, and I want to just make it clear. It's not that you're, you're not, advocating for people with super zooms to not make large prints if that's what you desire if that's your oh. photo that's your photo oh. it's just that they may require a little bit more cleanup department work in your post process yeah. um, to, to get the kind of quality that you might get with a more superior optical 
um, design, uh, different lens. Now, one trick that you can sometimes do, and it depends on the software you're using, as well as the camera and lens combination, is you can reduce the amount of distortion correction. Almost always with these lenses, um, things will default to 100% distortion correction. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, especially with older, slightly older bodies, you know, like the older Nikon Z bodies, there was no way to dial down distortion correction. It was uh, on. Other than and, the body. Yeah, other you than the body. It, you had to set it in the body, and then that would be baked into the raw file. Yeah, which had its own disadvantages. With some others, you have that flexibility. And, and so if you do have flexibility in taking down the distortion parameters, and it works for your image, which can often be the case for like a landscape shot, that can do wonders in terms of restoring clarity uh, at the edges. Yeah. With some with some lenses like that Canon 24 to 240, if you do that, you'll see some really weird stuff going on. <laughs> I'll okay. just tell you that. It yeah. it works for a little bit and then it gets really weird because that well, lens doesn't counterintuitive, but sometimes those distortion image. Sometimes those distortion tools smear out your images at the corners a little bit. They they, they certainly can. So um, and that particular lens has massive distortion at 24 millimeters and it doesn't cover the whole image. So they do some right. really interesting things to stretch it out, but that has a cost. Yeah. And some of these, you know, where do you see the distortion coming in? It's straight lines. It's like horizons uh, or mm -hmm. straight lines in buildings. And I can remember, um, oh, what lens was it that had that mustache distortion? So it was like the distortion wasn't, like just a straight curve like it curved up in the in the at the edges this is like imagine a horizon right. that's bowed a little bit but then it curves up like one of those old school mustaches right mm -hmm. uh, at the edges and and uh the, the good news was they had tools that could correct that but it, the lens profiles fixed it right. i'm trying to remember what lens that was but i can't it's it's escaping me at the moment yeah. but um you know yeah, but, there were several that 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 have done that yeah. So, you know, these are these are the things that you can see with super zooms when you compare them to some other lenses, you know. But again, I think we should just remind everybody that as much as we can nitpick at this, these are by and large good lenses um, that are very useful. They they have their use. And if you're on a tighter budget, there's nothing wrong with starting off with one of these in your bag. And, and it's nice to have around anyway. There's times when we just prefer to shoot that way. When you and, want to go light, I mean, this is the way to do it. And by the way, one of my motivations for um, talking about this is I have seen people purchase these lenses. And because their expectations were maybe not aligned quite right, or they didn't know about some of the tricks, they actually think, I just need to get rid of this thing and sell it. No. And and that may not be necessary. You may be able to get more out of it than you think with a few of these tricks. I've found them to be helpful. Well, I think these are a good, good list. Hopefully our listeners will get some value from that. Um, is there anything else on our docket for today? I think, I think we that's pretty it. much covered it. So um, listen, uh, for our listeners out there, thanks again for, for joining us. Uh, send us your questions uh, over on our Facebook page. Just uh, you can post or send us a, a, a direct message through that channel and we will get back to you and maybe even use your idea on one of our shows. Um, 
big uh, shout out to all the people who've already signed up to join us in Tucson. Hopefully um, it's something that you might want to think about uh, doing that uh, with us and let us know. We'd love to have you with, with our group until next time. Happy shooting. All right. Bye-bye.